Well, hey, everybody. Good to see you. I'm really glad you're here. Whether you've been here a long time or this is your first time, uh, whether you are here in the room or you're online uh, watching now or later or podcasting, going down the road, um, we're just glad that you're with us and glad that you're here. And by the way, the song we just heard by Andy Grammer, if you're wondering why he kisses Joy every night, it's because that's his, that's his wife's name is Joy. And so there's a double meaning there. But, um, but I hope you find joy. And that's what this, that God does too. That's what this series is about. Jesus said in John 15 that he, one of the reasons he came was to share his joy and that we would overflow with it. Like he wants us to know joy. The book of Philippians that we're in is about joy. And we're going to finish that series tonight. But first a word about next week. Next week is Vision Weekend. And don't miss it. Because... When we talk about the vision for our church and what God has in front of us, it's not like an institution or an organization that you're like, oh, that's cool what the church is going to do. The church is people. It's you and me. It's what God is calling us to. And all of us have a role to play. All of us have a part to play. You can either do it or not. But all of us, you know, God hasn't kind of guided us here. God hasn't put us here by accident. I believe you're here and I'm here for a purpose. And we're going to be talking about that purpose. And really the joy that comes from living for a bigger thing, a bigger vision than just our life. There's something bigger to live for. And we're going to be talking about that next week. And, and so don't, don't miss it. I don't want you to hear about it secondhand. There's some really cool things. I don't want you to hear about it thirdhand. So you get the point. Show up. That's great. Uh, vision weekend next week. But today we are finishing our series on the book of Philippians, which is about joy and how we can find joy. And today we're talking about the joy of unity. And the joy that comes when, especially with key people in our life, but really in any environment, when people are clicking and they're on the same page and they're unified, how wonderful that is compared to when that doesn't happen. Psalm 133.1 says, how good and pleasant it is. When God's people live together in unity. And isn't that true? Right? How joyful it is when God's people live together in unity. As opposed to when unity breaks down. Like I, I can, when I think about that, I think of road trips. Some of you are going to be taking road trips. This Thanksgiving. This Christmas. Uh, for us, our families, both Christy and, and me, we both grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. So we would, you know, drive with the kids from here to... 12-hour drive twice a year, you know, but always around Christmas we would go. And and for the first 10 minutes of the trip, it was beautiful. Like, and, and, and even, like, you would be so proud because if we, if we had had a camera in our minivan and you could see the Jones family for the first 10 minutes, you'd be like, man, that's amazing, Pastor family. Wow, that's incredible. Because our... Our tradition was that when we set out on a road trip, everybody in the family would pray from, you start with the youngest with Caleb and then all the way up to Christy, who, you know, is wonderful and older than me. And uh, not that I said that out loud, but and so we would pray that way. And then, but it was, it was like, like beautiful and unified and wonderful and godly. And you're like, oh, this is great for the first 10 minutes. And then sometime between that point and the 12 hour mark, Actually, multiple times. And at some point, all that beauty and unity would break down. And one, you know, maybe one, one of the, you know, one of the brothers, we have two sons, one would encroach on the space of the other. 
it would then encroach back and then it would get bigger and bigger and escalate and escalate and escalate. And eventually, you know, you've got dad saying, don't make me pull the car over, you know, all, all that stuff. Right. And that's no fun. And we're just, you know, hoping we can just get there. Right. But that's not just true of car trips. That's true of every relationship. Right. Isn't it? It's just so much better when things are unified and things are clicking, whether it's a marriage, a family, a friendship, a, a small group, a business, a work team, a church, anything, a neighborhood, a country. When things are unified and not divided, life is so much better. And some of you are getting PTSD just thinking about a road trip somewhere to be with family, not because of the road trip, but because of the destination. Because you know there's just a lot of landmines wherever you're going, relational landmines, and you're like, oh boy, here we go. Yeah, you know, when's something going to happen? Because there's somebody who's get hard to get along with, or there's unresolved tension, or unresolved conflict, or you're just kind of, you know, and, and you sort of have PTSD even thinking about it. Even though you love people, and you want to be there, you're like, ah. And so today what we're going to talk about, as we talk about the joy of unity, is how you and I can be people who contribute to unity. How we can be people who can do our part. We can only do our part. But what does it mean to do our part, to be the kind of people everywhere we are, every relational engagement, everywhere God has put us, in our work environment, in our neighborhood, in our family, wherever, in our church, in our small group, in our ministry, whatever, wherever you are, your team, your school, to be a person who contributes to unity, to not be a problem person, but to be a solution person. And as we're going to see, we're actually told to be that. Like, that's one thing that should set us apart as Christians. We should be like the easiest people to get along with and people who contribute to unity. And we're going to see what that looks like. Because I think we all want to be like that kind of person. But it's not always easy to be that kind of person. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? And in Philippians, Philippians talks a lot about unity. And originally I was going to just quickly look at all the passages, but there's not time for that. Just know it talks a lot about unity as most of the New Testament talks a lot about unity. And he's hinting at, hey, there's an issue in the church. And in Philippians 4, the passage we're going to zero in on, um, he just gets right to it. Like there's not just a general problem in the church that is causing unity. There's a specific conflict going on that's a public conflict. And Paul's like, hey, you've got to deal with it. Because unity is so important. And it's so much better. Life is so much more joyful. And God's mission is so much more effective when there's Unity. And so let's look at the passage. Uh, We'll start with verse 1 of Philippians 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand uh, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So he starts out saying, hey, look, stand firm in the Lord. He he loves these people. You can tell he started the church. Ten years before the church of Philippi. And so when he says, I, you know, you're my joy and my crown. I mean, it's like you might think of your children that way. Or if you're old enough, your grandchildren. He's, he, these are like his spiritual people. Like he just loves this church. But there's a problem. And that's why he says you need to stand firm in the Lord. And there was a way they weren't. Now when you hear the phrase stand firm in the Lord. If you're a Christian. I don't know not everybody is. But, but if you're a Christian and you hear stand firm in the Lord. I mean, you're going to want to do that. Like, who doesn't want to do that? Who would say, I don't want to stand firm in the Lord. Um, We all want to stand firm in the Lord. But what does that mean? Does it mean I'm going to stand firm in my beliefs 
and not be not lose truth or not be swayed away from, you know, biblical thinking. Is that standing firm in the Lord? I say, yeah, that's that. Sure. Or is it standing firm in the Lord when he says stand firm in the Lord in this way? Is he talking about like staying true to biblical living? You know, like staying away from sin and, and as much as possible and walking the way God and, and submitting to his better way. Yeah, that is standing firm. But when he says in this way, that's not what he's talking about as we're going to see. What he's talking about is in our relationships. And what we may not realize or think about is that as important as it is to do the other two things I said, stay away from sin, stay true to God's truth, very important, even more important to God is how we treat other people. I mean, we know that. So when Jesus said, uh, hey, what's the essence of spirituality? He said, well, it's really two things. Love God, love people. Uh, if you love God, you will love people. And when there's a love people problem, that's a stand firm in the Lord problem. That's not a minor problem. That's a big problem. And they had a problem. And I'm hoping I've got a problem with my notes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look on here. So let's go to the next verse. Oh, it's up here. Here we go. Here's the problem. I plead with Odia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they've contended at my, size in the co- at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So there was a problem in the church between two people, Odia and Syntyche. These two ladies in the church who were leaders in the church, that Paul had served alongside, and they're not getting along. And we don't know what happened. We don't know the conflict. Maybe, you know, something happened like Syntyche made fun of Odia's name. And she came into the room, she's like, anybody smelling Odia in here, you know? <laughs> and then she's like, you're making fun of my name, Syntyche, you know, Syntyche, you know, whatever. It's not my name. And it just, I doubt it. But I don't know. We don't know what it was. But we do know it was a public dispute. It was a, a public conflict because Paul mentions it publicly. The book of Philippians was designed to be read to the church. And everybody in the church, he wouldn't have made it public if it wasn't already public. So everybody knew about it. And my guess is, my strong presupposition is, is that it was, had divided the church. That people were taking sides between the two. And so therefore, it wasn't just these two leaders who were having a hard time getting along, but the church having a hard time getting along. And so in the verses that we just looked at, we're just going to pick those apart because there's so much here. As he says, hey, get along. Like, you've got to, he pleads with both of them, you, you've got to get on the same page. You've got to be of the same mind. And in the process, we learn how to do that and how to be those kind of people. And there's some observations of the passage that I think are really helpful. So as we think back through the passage, here's the first observation. Both ladies were great people. Um, both Odia and Syntyche were wonderful people. They were godly people. Um, they were commended by Paul. They were leaders in the church. They were godly, mature people committed to the mission. And sometimes I think we can think 
that people who are godly and who are mature and who are committed to the mission just get along. But that's not often true. That's sometimes not true, right? And sometimes because that they're so committed to the mission. That's a lesson that I learned uh, years ago in ministry, and I've certainly seen it played out over the decades of ministry. But when I first saw it, I was 18 years old. I graduated from high school, and I spent the summer before college in Eastern Europe. So I, we were based in Vienna, Austria, with this missions organization, going into Eastern Europe, which was then communist, and the Iron Curtain was still up. And we were going in smuggling training materials for uh, Christian leaders or who were uh, doing like kids go, who were doing children's ministry, and smuggling training and smuggling materials in. It's actually illegal. I would never let my 18-year-old do that when I think back to what I did, but it sounded good to me at the time, and, and my parents were very trusting, and, um, but it's kind of crazy looking back. But these missionaries, you know, they were risking their freedom to do it, because if they'd gotten arrested, they, it, it wouldn't have gone well, right? And so if they'd been found out, and they did it all the time, and so this is a group of very godly, committed people. I learned two things that summer from that group of missionaries who were based in Vienna, Austria. And one thing I learned from them was just a bonus. It was how to fast. It's kind of a cheat, kind of a hack, but how to fast in a way that looks impressive, but actually isn't impressive as it looks. And here's what I mean by that. So by fasting, that's a spiritual discipline where you don't eat for a period of time so you can devote yourselves to prayer. And what they would do every week, they fasted 24 hours as a whole team Every week, which is great. I, you know, very impressive. But the way they did it was smart. So they fasted from 1 o'clock on Sunday to 1 o'clock on Monday in the afternoon. And what they would do is they would, after church, they would eat this huge meal. Like so much that you wouldn't even want to think about eating on Sunday night, even if you weren't fasting. And then on Monday morning, they had a staff meeting and they prayed together. And then at 1 o'clock, they went to lunch at the same restaurant every time in Vienna, in Vienna. You know what Wiener Schnitzel is? The pork cutlet, you know, that's fried. These were the biggest Wiener Schnitzels you can imagine. I mean, they were the size of a backpack. They were literally like this big and thick, and there's no way you could eat it all, but they did because they hadn't eaten for, you know, 20. And so they would just eat like crazy and almost make themselves sick. And, uh, but probably cheating on the spirit of fasting, but genius. So I really, so I learned that. I learned fasting. But the other thing that I learned is how difficult it can be sometimes for people who are really passionate about a really big cause to get along. I mean, these were missionaries. They were committed. They were godly. And they had a hard time getting along. And all over the mission field, that's one of the biggest problems in the mission field, is just the missionaries getting along with each other. But that's true in churches. That's true. Any, it's true in businesses that have a big mission and people are really passionate about it because you care about it. And there's, you have strong opinions about how it should go and what you should do. And I mean, think about church. I mean, worship, I mean, worshiping God, that's a big thing. So, you know, different people have different ideas about what is worshipful and they're passionate about that. Or how to reach our community, or how to how, how to engage cultural issues as as a church. I mean, those get tricky because people are passionate, and they should be passionate, and 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 they have strong opinions. But here's what we've got to learn from these two, and what you see throughout the New Testament and concern for unity is as important as our passion is for our particular approach, our particular opinion about how something should be done. 
That's not nearly as important as unity. And never let our opinion disrupt the unity of the church because that's way more important. We should have opinions and all that, but then you just go with it. So you got to make a decision. You got to make a call. They, I think they were having a hard time doing that. But both ladies were great people. And good people sometimes don't get along. Second observation is Paul does not take sides. Which is interesting. He doesn't say, well, you know, Odie is amazing, but we all know Sintiki. I mean, <laughs> you know, I guess, you know, surprise, she's not getting along with somebody. You know, right? He doesn't say that. It's not, she's great, she's a goober, the other one's a goober. She commend, he commends each of them equally as wonderful, godly co-leaders with him in the church. They're both commended equally. And they're both commanded equally too. They're both commanded equally. He pleads with them. It's a strong thing. I, he, I plead with you, Odia. And he repeats it. I plead with you, Senteki, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Meaning to both of them, do what you got to do to get it together. To, be, to work it out. To be on the same page. To get back to harmony. To get back to unity. And I think that's an important observation because sometimes when we get in conflict with somebody and we all get in conflict with people is, you know, we we know our side. Right. So we tend to think that the real problem is not me. Right. The real problem is them. And therefore, they should be the one to work it out. Right. And so we can treat people and, you know, maybe be a little passive aggressive or withhold affection or do whatever we can to they kind of figure out what's wrong. You know, and and. Because they're the problem and we're, but it's sometimes that is true that one person's the 0% of the problem and one person's 100% of the problem, but hardly ever. I mean, sometimes it is. There are situations that are like that, but most are not in our everyday relationships. And so therefore you think, well, who should initiate? Who should do that? We'll talk more about this later, but you should. Um, whoever, whoever you are in the, in the conflict, both of these ladies were, hey, just both of you have responsibility to deal with it and to be open to your part of the problem. And so that's the second observation is, hey, there's not really sides. I mean, we're all, we all have part to play that's, you know, we're part of the problem and we can be part of the solution. Let's be open to it. Third observation is that Paul asks a third party to help. And he says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Now, this makes me feel a little bit better as a pastor because Paul, you know, who was a church planning pastor, I, I don't know, because he doesn't name the person. He just says, my true companion. It makes me wonder if he's as bad at remembering names as I am, you know, because he doesn't name the guy. And, and, I, and you know, when you don't know somebody's name and you see them and you, you don't want to just say, you don't want to ask, so what do you do? You say, hey, you, you know, or hey, buddy, or hey, girl, or hey, whatever, you know, and, and he's like, hey, my true companion, what's your face? Would you help these, you know, women? And uh, I don't know if he's doing that or not. Probably not, but I don't know. And probably this, he, the person he was writing to was the one, or the person he's referring to is the one he delivered the letter to. And that therefore was going to read the letter to the church. And so he's asking that person who would have been a leader in the church, would you help these, would you help these ladies? Because I think they need it. Because sometimes a conflict has gone on long enough and it's emotional enough and it's set enough that we need outside help. 
I mean, most of the time, if we deal with it quickly, especially, we can work it out between the two of us, between the two parties. But sometimes it just gets so, you know, whatever, that so difficult that we need an objective third party to help. And you may be in a conflict situation, you've tried to work it out, and it just, you're just not doing it. And third party help is a great it's just wise to do. And that's something we do as a church, by the way. And if you're in a small group, your small group leader is a great choice to do that. We have pastors and other people on staff who can help do that from time to time. Um, I used to do it more, but from time to time I've done that. Uh, where I've mediated between two people who are at odds with each other. Sometimes friends, sometimes marriage couples, sometimes business partners. And whenever I do that, I always insist that the two people who have a problem with each other get on the same side of the table, literally get on the same side of the table. And then I'll put a notepad on the other side of the table and say, okay, let's remember what we all want, what we both want in this. Because like in a marriage couple, like we both want a better marriage. We both want to honor each other. We both want to be open to how we can be better. I mean, there's a, a lot of things that we want that, that, you know, we're actually on the same team. We're not on opposite teams. And if we do this conflict right, we can actually get a lot more of what we want. Like we can have a better relationship than if the conflict had never happened in the first place if we do this right. And so let's just remember, we're not on the opposite sides of the table here. We're on the same team and we're trying to get to unity. We're trying to get to somewhere better and let's, let's help each other get there. But sometimes an objective third party can help. And then the fourth little observation from the passage is Paul is extremely urgent. The wording that he used when he says, I urge you, and then he repeats it, I urge you. It's not just like saying, you know, if you, if you can, it'd be really good to, you know, get it, get, get back together. It's not what he's saying. When he says, I urge you, it's like, I plead with you. I I'm on my knees. I'm begging you. Be of the same mind, resolve this conflict. Because unity is that important and unresolved hurt and unresolved conflict, it's not like fine wine. It does not get better over time. Right? It's more like raw chicken. You know? And if you leave raw chicken out, it doesn't take very long for it to not be so great. And same thing with unresolved hurt and unresolved conflict in our relationship. It's easiest to leave it out and not deal with it, but it's going to get gross. It's going to get rancid. It's going to get rotten. It's going to get stinky. It's going to cause problems really quickly. And that's why Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. When you're hurt, when you're angry, he's saying, don't even let the sun go down. Like, deal with it that day if you can. Because it's not going to get better just on its own. Romans 12:18 Paul told the Romans if it is possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone meaning if it's possible like I can't I can't do your part of the conflict resolution but I can do mine I can do my part and Paul is just saying you do your part as much as it, for as much as it's possible live at peace with everyone you can only do your part but do your part and do it quickly which then gets to the question, like, well, then what's your part? Like, if we want to be the kind of person that contributes to unity and knows the joy of unity and wants to be a unity builder, not a, not a problem person, 
then how do we do our part? When, and, and it'd be really helpful right now if you think about a conflict with somebody. You think about an unresolved hurt. You think about a tension in a relationship. Could be marriage, could be a friend, could be work, could be church, could be whatever. Um, and then as you get that in your mind, well, what do you do with that? And there's really two options. One is to let it go, and the other is to deal with it straight up. So let's talk about the let it go. That some things we really should let go. Now, let go does, is not the same thing. I'm not saying when I say let go, just stuff it. Keep it in your life and stuff it. And act like it's not a problem, even though it's a problem. That's not letting go. That's holding on to it. And if you hold on to stuff, like the raw chicken, it's not going to go well. Or you don't do that. So it's just going to eat at you. It's going to end up being bitterness and it's going to be set in. That, I'm not saying don't deal with it. Just act like it's okay, even though it's not okay. I'm saying move on from it. Let it go. Forgive and move on. Just don't make it. And, and, that mean, and that often requires God's help. Now, there's perspective in the passage that I think is really helpful that would cause me to say, hey, some things we should honestly just let go and make a bold choice to let it go. Because another observation in the passage is when he says, be of the same mind, that same phrase is used just a couple chapters earlier in, Ephesians, in, in Philippians, in Philippians 2, 1 to 4, he says to the, this church that's divided because of this conflict, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, and here's our same phrase, by being like-minded, being of the same mind. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, humility is, is not putting myself down, it's taking myself out of the equation. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. So he just said the same phrase, be of the same mind. And there he's given him perspective about what that looks like and what that means and why I'd say some things we should just let go. And as I think back through the passage, when you think about whatever it is that you're dealing with right now, whatever hurt or conflict or thing that's bothering you, one question to ask to say, should I let this go or not, is this. Is this important enough to disrupt the common commitment to a bigger purpose or should I just let it go? Meaning, is it... Is it really that big of a deal compared to what unites us? Because Paul just said, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, we are all united with Christ corporately, not just individually. I mean, Jesus is at the center, if you're a Christian, the center of all of our lives, and we share him. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Holy Spirit, we have the same Holy Spirit, God, that's at work in our lives, that is there to unite us. We have the same mission. We have the same relationship with God. We're in the same spiritual family. And he's just saying, just think of all that unites us and how important that is. And is this thing that is bothering you, is it really worth making a thing of? Or is it just not that big a deal? We talked about this a few weeks ago in the rebranding series, quoting somebody else, um, where he said, What does not unite us should never be allowed to divide us. Meaning, there's some things that unite us as a church. A common commitment to Jesus and his teachings and certain beliefs and values and all that that unite us. 
But there's a lot of things that don't unite us and should not be allowed to divide us. So, I mean, we're about to go through a political season. Anybody looking forward to that? You know, next year, it's going to be interesting, right? But let's not let that divide us because that doesn't unite us. We have all kinds of persuasions. We should, you know, have opinions, have a, but that's not, it shouldn't be allowed to divide us because that's not what unites us. What unites us is bigger than that. And so a great question to ask is, is, is this really worth even holding on to? Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Another question to ask of just, should I let it go? Is this, is this really about me being self-focused rather than other-focused? Because what Paul says is, hey, be of the same mind, having the same love. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You just have to ask yourself, am I bothered right now really because it's about self-interest? Like some of the things that bother us, it's like, hey, I'm not, I didn't get credit for that. Or people aren't hearing me. They're listening to other people. They're not listening to me. Or they're not doing my preference and, and I want my preference. You know, and uh, where we go on vacation or what church is like or the decision that's made. And the biblical ethic is, you know what, when, when I don't get my preference and somebody else does, when my interests are set aside and somebody else, their interests are furthered, you know what we should do? is be excited about it because that's our ethic. We're other focused. We lay down our lives for the sake of others. We're not self-focused. But you and I happen to live in the most self-focused, I think, the most self-focused culture in the history of cultures. We're individualistic. We're not communal. Uh, we, we, we are a culture that's built around ourself and that it really wants to be comfortable, really wants our preferences to be met. We, we, are, we don't really have such a... a, a an idea of a bigger context out there, you know, family, institution, country or whatever, that we're going to yield my preferences for the sake of something bigger, that's disappearing in our culture. It's tragic that it's disappearing, but it's disappearing. But as Christians, that's not our ethic. Our ethic is there is something bigger than just myself. And if I don't get what I want, if my preference is not met and somebody else's is, then I'm like, awesome, that's my jam. That's what I do. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. And so just ask, I mean, is really what's bothering me is just selfish and self-interest. Another thing as it relates to love is asking the question, am I, because this is what love does, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love believes the best. It also gives a lot of grace, a lot of rope. It endures all things. But he says love believes the best. And when we get hurt or when we get bothered, we start telling ourselves a story and I think it's helpful to stop when that happens and rewrite the story the best possible way. Because love does that. Love believes the best. And rewrite the story in your head saying, okay, I've got this story in my head of this person did this and it's because they're a goober and they, whatever. And I've got my story of what, what their motives are. But what if instead I just wrote the best version, the best possible version of what's going on? And if I get to the end of that story and I still have an issue, then I probably should deal with it. But if not, love believes the best. Just assume the best and choose to move on. Some things we can just let go. Now, again, letting go is not keeping it and acting like I'm letting go or acting like it's okay. Letting go is choosing to forgive, choosing to move on, choosing to say this is not an issue I should even be concerned about. And God help me 
you know, I'm going to make a decision, but God helped me catch up to that decision emotionally. And so some things we can let go, but some things we should not let go. And how do you know the difference? Because some things you should deal with it straight up. So how do you know the difference? And I think the best question to ask with that is, what's the most loving thing to do? Because sometimes the most loving thing to do is to deal with it, is to bring it out in the open. Because it gives your relationship an opportunity to grow through that conflict. It gives you and the other person opportunity to gain insight about their own life. If there's a pattern especially that needs to be addressed in somebody's life, it's loving to deal. It's not loving to act like it's okay when it's not okay. If, if it has the opportunity for the person to learn and for you to learn too. And so you deal with it straight up. And so what does it look like? What does it mean to deal with it straight up? Well, it means having a crucial conversation. It means bringing it out of the open. And Ephesians, the way Ephesians 4 talks about it is the phrase it uses, speaking the truth in love. That we speak the truth in love. That when you have a conflict situation, you say, you know, we need to have a conversation. And then you do it in love, in a loving tone, loving way, loving time, with the other person's interest at heart. But also you speak the truth. And what's the truth when you're in a conflict situation? There's only a couple things you know to be the truth. You know what happened, at least your version of what happened, and you know how it makes you feel. You don't know why they did what they did or didn't do what they didn't do. And often that's when we get in trouble because we're like, well, you know, you, uh, and we make up this story. It's not even the right story. It's not the truth. And we judge their motives. We don't know their motives. But what we know is what happened. You said you would do this and you didn't. Or you said this and it hurt. Or you did this and it, you know, you did, this is what happened and this is how it makes me feel. And I'm hurt. And we need to talk about it. That's a great conversation. Right? You speak the truth in love. And in a conflict situation, and we've hinted at this, but who should be the one to initiate the conversation? The offending party or the offended party? What do you think? I'll just give you the answer. Yes, it's both. It doesn't matter. You deal, and the Bible says that. Like Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, talking about going to the temple and the Old Testament you know, system, and you're worshiping God and you're giving this gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, meaning they're offended by you, they're bothered by you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. I mean, this is worshiping God, which is a pretty big deal. And what God is saying, Jesus is saying, look, let's say you're at church, okay, and you're worshiping God. You're here at church. Some of you may need to leave right now. And you, and I'm okay with it. But you, like, you're at church and you're worshiping God. That's a big deal, right? And, and God loves worship. And you think, man, what's more important than that? And what God says, there was something more important than that. Leave. If you know there's unresolved conflict and somebody has an issue with you, go and deal with it. Because it's that urgent. It's that important. And then come back and worship God. But not until you've done your part to deal with it. So let's say you feel like somebody's offended by you. And as you're thinking about some of these conflicts, and you're, then you go and don't wait for them to figure it out and initiate it. Or on the other side, in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about when somebody has offended you. And here's Matthew 18, 15. It says, 
If another believer sins against you, talk about that with other people. It's actually not what it says. But that's what we do, right? We're like, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know what they said? You know what they did? And we have this whole story. Let me, this, is, this is Matthew 18, 15. If another believer sins against you, bring it up as a prayer request with others so that everybody knows about it. That's not what he said either. But that's what Christians do. Like, have you ever been in prayer requests and like, you know, I just really need you to pray for so-and-so because, man, this is what they did and I'm really hurt. And, you know, they go into this whole thing. And, and that's a foul. Uh, that's not fair. This, this is actually Matthew 18, 15. It really is, okay? I, no, no kidding this time. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Hey, look, I'm hurt. This is what happened, and I'm, I'm really bothered by it. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. So Matthew 18, 15 is, okay, let's say, you know, you've got an offense against somebody. Don't wait for them to figure it out. You go and deal with it and bring it out in the open. And hopefully it'll be resolved and you can have a, a better relationship and you win this person back and you're in harmony again. And, and, but, but notice how important it is to say, hey, if you have a problem with somebody, go talk to them. Not about them, but to them. And it's way too easy to talk about people rather than to people. And that's why from time to time we talk about this as a church. And it's a commitment we make as leaders um, is a Matthew 18, 15 commitment that always talk to the person, not about the person when there's a conflict, when there's an issue. Because otherwise, all you're really doing is slandering people. Because you know your version of the story, you haven't even dealt with it yet. And my experience is 80% of the time, a lot, there's just a lot of misunderstanding. I'm hurt until I talk to you and hear your side of the story and realize I might still be hurt, but I understand it better. And I'm like, oh. And sometimes it's just total misunderstanding. It's like, oh, well, man, I shouldn't have been offended. Like, I get it. But if I've already talked to a bunch of people, right, I've just ruined their reputation. I've just caused, you know. And, and so Jesus is saying, hey, you talk to the person, not about the person. And then you... Bring it up and you have the conversation. How do you have a hard conversation? Well, I don't have time in this message to go into all that. But I'll give you some hints. Read Ephesians 4 before you have that. The second part of Ephesians 4 is just incredible on how to have a hard conversation. To speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love. To be ready to forgive. To not react in bitterness and, and rage and anger. To be humble and to listen to your part of it. So Ephesians 4 is great. The other thing I'll tell you about is Ignite. Ignite is a study here that we do quite often, and it's an opportunity to learn how to have difficult conversations and relationships. And, and if you haven't been through Ignite, let me encourage you to go through that small group experience. Christy and I did it this spring. We've been married 34 years, and it was amazing for us. You'd think by now we'd have, a, you know, we'd have a little bit figured out about how to have a hard you know, conflict situation. But it was so helpful for us. So let me encourage you to do that. And Paul continues, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Which is interesting that he just, it's like, why does he all of a sudden just say that? After he says, hey, these two ladies, get along, help them get along, get it together. And then he says, rejoice. And like, is he moving on? And he's not. It's part of the same passage. Because there's joy in unity. And when two people who are not together get it together and there's unity and unity is restored, just like the psalm, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. 
And people who are unity builders have a whole lot more joy than people who are unity destroyers. If you want to be joyful, being bitter and complaining and selfish and self-focused is not the answer. Right? But being people who contribute to unity, who are actually difficult to offend because you're other focused. And when you are offended, you deal with it in a biblical way and in a godly way. Um, you stand out. And that's why Paul ends the conversation with let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And the word translated gentleness is a really cool word. It's hard to translate. Um, different translations translate with different words because of that. Gentleness is fine, but it's just so much more to it. It's hard, it's hard to, it's such a, it's, linguists call it a fat word. Because what it means is this. It's, it's surprising gentleness, surprising kindness, that it's unexpected because what you'd expect is retaliation. What you expect is unkindness. What you'd expect is anger, but somebody doesn't do what's expected. Instead, they have this surprising gentleness, this surprising kindness. They don't react like everybody else. And Paul is saying that's the, should be, is one of the things that should be evident to all, talking about people who don't know Jesus. One of the things that should separate us in a polarized, divisive world is we, we don't contribute to that. We have this surprising gentleness and kindness that even when people come at us, we don't get riled up. We don't respond, you know, tit for tat. We, we don't respond the way they do. We don't, we don't do that. We're people who stay calm. And some things we just choose to let go. And some things we choose, we're going to deal with it, but we're going to deal with it in a godly way, in a loving way. And in a way that has every opportunity to contribute to unity. And that's who God calls us to be. So I want you to think about that relationship, that conflict, or that tension. I mean, if you, don't have, if you can't think of anything, then man, you know, go throw a party tonight, you know. But my guess is all of us can think about something. Work, school, family, marriage, friendship, church, something. And just, we're going to go to God with it. But just say, hey, should I... Is this something I should just let go or is this something I really need to have? I need to deal with it straight up and soon and have a crucial conversation. And in Matthew 18, it, it's a, there's a cool verse where Jesus says, hey, just so you know, when you do this, where two or three gather in my name, I'm going to be with you in the midst. You're not on your own. And a lot of times people take that verse and they like, when you go to church and where two or three people are gathered in their name, Jesus is in their midst. And it's like, oh, I need to go to church. And, it's, and, and that's great, but it's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about when you have this hard conversation and you're scared and you're like, I don't know how this is going to go. And I just hope it goes well. Jesus is saying, you know what, you're not on your own because I care so much about that. I'm going to be with you and I'll help you. So let's go to God in prayer. Father, I do pray for our church. I pray for our families. I pray for our neighborhoods. I pray for our workplaces that you would help them be places of increasing unity and understanding and love and harmony. And Father, I, I ask us that you would guide us in whatever relationship that you've put on our heart. What does it look like for us to be a peacemaker, a unity builder? God, is this something that we should let go? Or is this something we should deal with soon? 
And God, help us let it go. Or help us deal with it soon. And at least do our part in that conversation. And pray that you just help us remember that you're going to be there. We're not going to be on our own. And you would help it go well. And if not, help us deal with it anyway. And pray that we'd be the kind of people where our gentleness, our surprising kindness will be evident to all. In Jesus' name, amen.